Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Elliot Costello. Elliot's a social entrepreneur and founder of the organization YGAP. Since 2008, YGAP has supported 397 impact entrepreneurs in developing countries, improving the lives of over 580,000 people living in poverty. In addition, YGAP has developed a highly successful social enterprise that will be very familiar to Melbourne locals, Feast of Merit. Elliot recently resigned as CEO of YGAP and is currently having some time off before taking on his next big project. Elliot, thank you for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I imagine that many of our listeners are quite familiar with YGAP, but for those that aren't, can you give us a bit of an overview of what the organisation does? Certainly. I think you paid great justice to YGAP in your introduction, but um, the only other things to add is, um, look, we we are an organisation that does really believe in the power of local entrepreneurship. So fundamentally, um, we do believe that local people have the answers to local problems in their local communities. So after 10 years, we've been on a journey to really find and back these local leaders, as we like to call them, who are impact entrepreneurs um, with solutions to problems in their community. And uh, our model works on four stages where we find um, local entrepreneurs in South Africa, Kenya, Bangladesh, um, more recently in the Pacific and Australia too. We take the best 12 through an intensive six-day accelerator program where they get almost an MBA in six days. It's entrepreneurship training for local leaders um, where we panel beat their ideas, really test them on their thinking, ideate new solutions, take them to the root causes of their problems, um, and then really help identify smart commercial approaches to solving that problem. The third stage is six months of tailored support. So it's called a support phase where we do all types of website designs, legal accounting support. We provide impact measurement tools, access to small grants to test ideas. And the fourth stage is the fund stage. So that's a grow stage for some of the best entrepreneurs. Usually two of the 12 will get through to the fourth and final stage, grow. So that's our model, find, accelerate, support and grow. Um, Interestingly, in the grow stage, we've democratised entrepreneurship and we get the ventures to vote on each other's ventures um, to see who gets through to the fourth and final stage. So, as you mentioned, we've backed just short of 400 impact ventures across Africa, Asia and uh, the Pacific now too. And, yeah, it's had uh, a tremendous um, focus on improving the lives of people living in poverty, um, inherently looking at healthcare, education, job creation and importantly, education too. So I've taken a back step, but uh, the organization's in a really healthy space now as Manita Ray takes over. Yeah, wow. That sounds that's so interesting. I, I am quite familiar with the YGAP model, but it's great to hear you explain it. 
when you're looking at an entrepreneur, what are you looking for? What are the markers of a good entrepreneur? That's a great question, Rachel. Look, inherently, you, you're probably looking at where, what their position is in the community. Are they someone with lived experience? Are they someone that's been based there for a while? So with respect to an Australian that may be based in the northwest province of South Africa, um, living in a community for 12 to 24 months, we do not see them as someone equipped to solve that local problem. So what type of knowledge do they have of that problem, whether it's lived experience or just through a lived experience of a family member or friend, how connected are they to that issue? You're looking at um, how they started. Is there any runs on the board? Um, is it someone just with an idea? Or is it someone specifically that's thrown their hand up, launched an organisation, has some form of impact, has tested an idea, may have some revenue? Um, so we, we always want to find an early stage entrepreneur. So trying to avoid the ideation phase, but we're really taking people into that very early stage. Have they commenced a project? And um, with the benefit of that, um, we, have, we really want to help them commercialise and grow that venture. And we, they may pivot significantly. Some of the best ventures we're backed have pivoted significantly in the accelerate phase. But um, having a run on a board um, really does help. We're then looking for a entrepreneur who's got a point of difference. So what are they doing in their community that hasn't been done before? What solutions are they applying that's different to other approaches around them? And there's specific questions that we ask that will really define, are they, the, are they unique with their idea? Or is this just a rehash of stuff that's been tried in the past? Um, then there's aptitude and attitude. Um, how hungry are they to solve this problem? Or is it someone just looking to fill in some time before they go off to study? Or is it a job that they don't see themselves doing for the next three to five years? We do want people with perpetuity and continuity. Great explanation. So you founded YGAP back in 2008. Can you talk about how the organisation has changed across that 10-year period? Well, it's changed a lot as everything and everyone does over 10 years. We've um, certainly done a lot of growing up. Uh, 2008 was an experiment for us. A group of friends and I wanted to volunteer in Africa, looked into international development organisations and international volunteer organisations as intermediaries and were pretty disenchanted with the fact that exorbitant fees are attached to volunteering. And so most of these programs were three, four, sometimes five or $6,000 per person per program to go volunteer. And we thought that was a bit of BS. Like why would a group of 10 friends need to sink $50,000 into an intermediary just to go volunteer. So at the heart of the global financial crisis, we launched the worst business model possible and um, YCAP was born in September 2008 um, with nothing but energy and passion of a group of young Australians. We were successful in our first two months to fundraise $134,000 um, through a number of events, family, friends, bike rides, a bit of corporate support and undertook two uh, volunteer programs, one in Malawi um, at a school in, in Nguenya, just south of the capital of Ilongwe, which education school which was building a new infrastructure for a school that educated 6,672 students in 12 dilapidated classrooms, so still remains one of Africa's most overpopulated schools. And then we undertook a, a vocational training program, building a vocational training centre in Kerikarachi in Ghana, which is um, central Ghana along the Lake Volta region where 7,000 young children are enslaved 
in the fishing industry. Most people will be well aware of the coca industry's problem with child labour, but the fishing industry on the Aswan Dam um, enslaves very conservative estimate of 7,000 people. So that's how we started. Um, admittedly, with the Malawian quattro pegged to the US dollar, we ran out of money in our first development project and had to turn to Facebook to raise $8,000 in 48 hours to finish our, our first project. And uh, we, we shaved one of our volunteers' heads, Louise Atkins, who had the longest, most beautiful hair. And we raised $8,000 in less than 48 hours off Facebook fundraising. Um, her two ex-boyfriends were the biggest donors. So we, I guess we started our innovative fundraising very early. And the, the nature of why I, got, I, get, I guess for the first two or three years was enthusiasm, passion, and just a sheer will to try so many things. Um, we launched a, a water company just before Thank You did. It's called Add Water. It was a biodegradable water bottle, which didn't work for us. We launched Kinfo Cafe you know, a year into our journey, which did work for us. We had creative communities, Lifelink, Dreamlink. We had all these projects that um, it was just perpetual effort to, to get these fundraising initiatives off the ground to support our international development partners. So I guess to draw the picture, what, what's happened with all that energy and input is we have sophisticated. Um, we've found projects that work, Feasting Rates 1, but, of course, um, more profitable for us has been a polished man campaign, and we've basically zoned in on things that do work, um, but equally important has been a flip in our development model. We shifted away from just locally-based development partners, how we started in 2008 to 2013, which was here's some phenomenal partners, focus on youth education and youth leadership across Africa and Asia, and we fundraise for them, um, drop in the whole volunteer part um, for reasons we can talk about later, but we then zoned in on a, a realisation that the best way to affect change was by finding and backing local leaders. So YGAP experienced this in our development model by backing a guy, David Mumbawe, in a place called Nenyo, Rwanda, which is uh, about an hour and a half south of the capital, Kigali. And then we sort of asked ourselves, how can we find more David Mumbawe's? This is a guy who stepped up in his community to take on his grandfather's legacy post-genocide issues um, of conflict, but also huge education problems too. And, and David's response to this problem uh, was tremendously powerful and, and we backed him financially and through um, some training and support. And so that led to a journey of um, coming across Spark International and uh, a merger between two truly forming um, youth organisations in Australia. So we I guess the short story, Rachel, that's a very long answer, was we've sophisticated and we've focused in on things that have worked for us, uh, but we've remained innovative and prepared to test unique ideas to, to land on the right solutions. You mentioned towards the end there that in 2015, you merged with Spark International, which was something else I wanted to ask you about today. Can you tell us what led the two organisations to merge and, and how you know that someone's a good fit for you? Look, merger is a topical thing in the not-for-profit sector. We, I think, at times, and I don't want to generalise, but we're sort of devoid of this conversation about merging two organisations or one acquiring another organisation. Um, I do come from five years of experience in the corporate sector. I started my career in both accounting and then finance whilst building YGAP as a volunteer. So it wasn't a big, scary thing. I worked on the mergers and acquisitions team at PPP Advisory. And 
when when we came across Spark, it was a, a very healthy conversation. But I think what prevents nonprofits from merging are three things: brand, boards, and egos. And they're often interlinked, but it just has this crippling ability for not-for-profits to innovate. With 56,000 registered non-profits on the ACNC's website and wants to extend out to all types of community groups, religious institutions and sporting um, groups, you, you're really looking at close to 500,000, if not more, um, non-profits in Australia. So the need for innovation is tremendously high. Um, our conversation with Spark was, was very seamless. Um, this is an organisation that was based in Sydney, uh, husband and wife co-founders, Aaron and Caitlin Tate, um, really working on the coalface of impact. They were working in Papua New Guinea, South Africa and Kenya, providing early stage entrepreneurship support um, to local leaders. We were really focused on fundraising. YGAP had become sort of synonymous specifically in Melbourne with fundraising. Um, we'd launched Feast of Merit. We're running Kinfolk, Polish Man, Five Cent, a number of sort of initiatives that kept popping up and created a lot of um, hype and attention and um, built movements of, of young people wanting to volunteer. But as I mentioned, we were trying to sophisticate our development model. We knew there was a better way to spend the money that we are given. And so our, our conversation was cool, we're being entrepreneurial entrepreneurial and innovative with our fundraising, but we're not matching that right now with that, the way we spend our money. And we can't be congruent with who we are if we're telling donors we're unique, we're innovative, we're pushing boundaries. But our development model was no different to a lot of organizations working in Africa and Asia. And I could say hand on heart that organizations doing it better than us. So some of the issues that we face were well, this existential question, do we really need to exist? And if we're trying to be an international development organisation, are we best to work with others? Are we best to fold that up? Um, how can we improve more people's lives um, by being congruent with who we are? So we started on that journey, as I mentioned, looking at David Mumbawe and trying to expand past that, um, developed a methodology, spun it around to the sector. Um, Aaron, I'd known for about a year and a half, two years, since they moved back to Australia from the UK, and um, I'd played an advisory role in Spark International's committee. Aaron picked up the phone, called me and said, what about working together? Of course, it started off, you know, from anything from a partnership to a merger to, to what, could we, what could be just, a, you know, a way that we complement each other in the sector. But um, 15 months of board looking at it um, right through to advisors, our volunteer management teams, um, we realised the best way to be congruent here and to have change was to bring the two organisations together. So that happened in early 2015. You just made two statements which we very rarely hear not-for-profit CEOs make, or two questions rather that you asked, do we really need to exist and are others doing it better than us? And I think that's so powerful and we don't hear those questions enough. How did you develop the sort of leadership style that prompted you to ask these questions? I mean, if you're not asking these questions, you're probably not doing your job. As I say, with, with so many varying nonprofits trying to solve the same problem, to not have that ability to lean back and ask why. Are we the best place? Do we need to be here? Um, is there a better way of doing things? I think many would be asking internally, 
but maybe not publicly talking about it. Um, it it's sad to know that there are tens of thousands of organisations that uh, are working on the same problem um, and not collaborating. So I guess our questions were inherent. WIGAP's a very decentralised organisation. We always welcome people in and they could walk into management positions and be engaged in the organisation in a deep and meaningful way. But we didn't force people to just be subordinates. We gave them a voice. And so when when stuff like our projects came up and we knew there was better ways of doing things, we, we just had honest conversations about it. Um, and I know Paul, Paul Ronald's quite closely, say the children's CEO, they're, they're doing really innovative stuff now too. They're, they're acquiring and merging with a number of organisations to improve efficiency. So maybe it's a... Uh, the, the, the decentralised, democratic way I built YGAP, or, or maybe it's a bit of my corporate background that I knew there was always efficient, more efficient ways of doing certain things. Yeah, and as you said, there, there are more and more not-for-profits in the sector that, that are asking these questions, and I think that is a huge step in the right direction for everyone. You mentioned your private sector background, uh, and so you spent some time with PwC and uh, some other organisations you've mentioned as well. Throughout that time, how has your own development ideology changed? Well, starting an organisation at 23 years old, you're filled with nothing more than a very utopian, uh, optimistic view of the world. Not that I'm pessimistic now, but um, we had no bloody idea what we were doing. And I think that's fair enough to put on the table. We, we, you know, I'd done a master's in development studies, read books, you know, but grew up in a family that was exposed to international development. But you actually don't have any idea what you're doing until you spend time in communities and actually listen to people. And that's where so many development workers go wrong. They sit halfway across the world with good intentions, a good education, but bloody think they know what they're doing halfway across the world. You don't. The best thing any development worker can do is get out of the way and just listen to the people on the ground and provide space for them to solve their own problems. So our, our genesis was obviously this group of young Australians wanting to volunteer overseas, and we made mistakes. We made a lot of mistakes um, in country, um, putting our volunteers into positions where they were exposed to things that probably shouldn't have been in the field, uh, lack of policy and rigour around um, who was supposed to be there and not supposed to be there, ways we worked with our development partners. So it took sophistication to get to the point that we're at now, and we're probably lucky to, to wear those bumps and learn from them and grow. So what have I learned? I've, I've probably learned more than anything else how problematic it is to have so many people trying to solve problems, which really some of these organisations, and I don't want to point fingers, just failed to do the simplest thing in development, and that's listen. And again, I say it's with good intentions and a great education, but the best solutions do not, the best solutions to problems connected to poverty in sub-Saharan Africa or places around Asia or Latin America, wherever you're trying to work, they do not come from Melbourne. They do not come from Geneva. They do not come from New York. They do not come from London. And I appreciate with great intentions, but they come from people on the ground who have lived experience. So what, what I've learned is how do we exist by getting out of the way and providing the simplest but most important support for a very short period of time to propel 
a local entrepreneur to solve that problem. A quote that I shared a few episodes ago, some advice that I was given when I first started working in this sector was you should always be trying to put yourself out of a job. You should sort of always be trying to see yourself as playing less of a role gradually in the communities that you're working in rather than playing more and more of a role, uh, which goes into, into dependency and all those sorts of things. When you say we should be getting out of the way, is, is that sort of what you're meaning as well? It definitely is. And so, I mean, anyone that works in the sort of sector of international development knows that we'd all love to be out of a job um, for, for, you know, poverty to be a thing of the past and for us not to exist and need to wake up every day fighting for the human rights of others um, living below the poverty line. Um, we're, we're trending in the right direction and I think it's very important to stay optimistic about some of the important work that's happened. Um, it's not just the international development sector, of course, access to trade and um, better governance and other reasons why millions of people are being lifted out of poverty. But we would all love to not have to fight uh, for human rights um, of others, but that's a reality. Um, so at the same time, we very strategically at Wyagap, our staff base is 24 staff now um, and more than half are based are locally employed staff working in the field. So, of course, we have head, head office in Melbourne with comms, finance, operations, campaigns, fundraising. But in the field, all of our staff, South Africa, Fiji, uh, Fiji um, Bangladesh and Kenya, all of those staff members, you know, two to three, sometimes four people are always locally based staff members. So we can hopefully continue that trajectory and make ourselves almost irrelevant and ensure that it's local people who are working to solve local problems employed by a local organisation. And on that point, can I ask, the entrepreneurs that you work with, how many years are they generally involved with YGAP for? So most most would barely get through that first year. So you've got, um, you know, the fine stage, you apply, you get into the program, six-day intensive accelerator, a few months after you're accepted, then you've got six months of support um, in that third stage. Our third stage used to be one year of support. We cut it back um, to provide deeper, more tangible support in a shorter period of time. The fourth and final stage, from 120 applicants that we get in the fine stage, only 20, sometimes that is a lot higher. One of our programs, Why Her, which was Pan-Africa program looking at female-led um, veg ventures, we had 550-odd um, applications, so significant amount of applications. But an average program in country would get anywhere from 120 to 150 applicants. We choose the top 12 um, of those 12. That all be sort of part of the program for 12 months. But two of them will go into the fourth and final stage, grow. And so even with that grow stage, yeah, there's – opportunities for $25,000, sometimes more of um, growth funding, and that can be in the form of a grant if you're a non-profit, if you're a hybrid social enterprise or a for-profit for impact, we, we have tested investments. They're very um, safe investments, um, sort of convertible notes favourable to the ventures. But um, even even those people do not formally stay part of the program for a long time. We, we more than anything else, we're trying to push them out um, to really 
find their feet and start running at full pace with new solutions to the work there to the problems they're trying to solve I think that model makes so much sense I I really like it you made a point earlier that I want to come back to about volunteering Mm -hmm. I think I think so often people just don't know how to help And, you know, you just want to find a way to help and to do something, you know, whether it's sending care packages overseas or visiting a a school or something on your holiday to Cambodia. Um, Volunteering is is quite a popular way, I think. But I agree with you that that presents some challenges, um, both for us and for the communities that that we're working in. So why did YGAT move away from the volunteering model as it was and what are your thoughts broadly on volunteering look it is a fine line we we started off as volunteers ourselves so i don't try and discourage people away from having an experience but it's just irrespective of age being conscious of where's the reciprocal basis of that relationship so you know you're getting a great experience but how much good are you providing um and so I think a lot of organisations and individuals mismeasure the impact they're having. You know, f- flying in for sort of two weeks, taking your photos and flying out really does not provide any form of lasting change. So there are some great opportunities and I often just say to people, just think about what skill set you're going to be taking, what time frame you're going to be investing into that experience, what relationships are you going to build Who's it more important for? So I very openly encourage people to, to spend time in the field. I think you, you really learn more than you'll ever learn from a textbook. But, again, where, where, where's the balance of that power? Well, as 18 years old, are you the right person to try and solve an education problem or healthcare problem in a country where you have no understanding of the cultural complexities? So we shifted away from it because – we realised that sending young groups of young Australians to the field wasn't the best way of creating change. Um, we were much better to use the funds, not that we're funding volunteers, volunteers are paying in their own way, but we're much better to continue using the energy of young Australians to fundraise in, in Melbourne and Australia and then use those funds to support locally run ventures um, with the program we now have um, inherited through the merger with Spark. So it is a fine line, but I think it's just being conscious um, who you are, what skills that you're bringing, how long you want to spend in the field, what's what's the reciprocal nature of that relationship, um, and what you're going to do at that time. You know, if, are you coming back to focus on and work with an organisation or build your own thing, or are you just returning back to life so you've got a few more pictures for Facebook? Like, what what, what type of impact are you trying to have? And I think on that note, one of my favourite programs at the moment is AVI, Australian Volunteers International. I've got a lot of close friends who have done volunteering stints through AVI in, in Timor, in Papua New Guinea. And more often than not, they stay at the end of their two-year placement and they'll stay and work for another organisation over there. And I, 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 think it's, I think it's really fantastic. It's, I think it's a, a model that we should try to replicate. But I agree with you that um, it's all about questioning what your value is. On that note, you uh, you mentioned that YGAP has started working in the Pacific in recent years. So can you comment on, on why you entered the Pacific and, and how you knew that, that you were adding value to that region? 
So our um, move to this uh, to the Pacific has been um, led actually by an opportunity with DFAP. Um, they've sort of looked at our model. We, we haven't taken a lot of or any sort of government funding over the years. Um, we've built our, our own model where we've had um, autonomy over our fundraising, never been dependent on state or federal funding until recently. I guess that's a sign of maturity too, but also state and federal government now looking at our model saying, oh, we, we want to get behind this. So um, launch fifth um, statutory body of the state, uh, Victorian state government, funded us very significantly for our first gens program, which was uh, three programs of 18 months to support refugees and migrants with early stage impact ventures in Victoria. And so that was the first sort of form of government funding we received. Second has been some DFAT funding to explore the Pacific. So our work um, in Africa which with our Why Her program, which, as I mentioned, is focused on female adventures. Um, there was a significant interest, and for those listening would be well aware that, um, or most would be aware that DVAT has a specific interest in Asia-Pacific. Um, we were working and still are working in Bangladesh, um, but they wanted a more regional project. And so we, we thought the only major regional project, we've gone vertical in each country we work in and, and set up staff and office and facilities to run our programs um, very vertically in countries, but the only horizontal program we've done was Why Her Africa with great success. So we decided to do Why Her Pacific and uh, have one staff member uh, now based in Fiji and uh, we're recruiting at the moment for the fine stage for female-led ventures right across the Pacific. So um, so that's a really exciting program. There are all types of uh, ventures that are now applying and um, big job that Millicent Scott, our new staff member, to, to be part-time working in um, Fiji and uh, to be recruiting so many diverse, unique ventures that are female-led and female-run right across the, the uh, neighbouring region of Australia. That's really exciting. I, I've worked mainly in the Pacific myself and something that always stood out to me was the prevalence of the informal economy throughout the Pacific. So many of the communities that I worked in were primarily employed through the informal economy, through things like roadside stalls or um, you know, crafts, that, that sort of thing, handicrafts. And I've often wondered about the relationship between entrepreneurship and the informal economy. Are, are people that are working in the informal economy fundamentally entrepreneurs or are entrepreneurs more a fixture of the formal economy? It's a great question. I spent some time at uh, a conference in Mexico. It's not a bad location for a conference, but it's actually a really remarkable conference um, last year in, in October. So it's uh, had some of the best um, leaders from the sector. They, they take themselves out of, um, it's called opportunity collaboration. They take themselves out of America because they're mostly American and Americans are too fixated on handing out business cards and working the rooms. So this group said, we've got a break from that and um, take ourselves down to a location where you're not just handing out business cards and it's not transaction based. It was based on relations and, and building a better network for the sector. So um, some of the best people I met were people focusing on the informal economy. Um, and I, I don't think there's 
a, a distinct difference between an entrepreneur who's in the informal and formal economy at all. An entrepreneur is just someone who's waking up and saying, shit, there's a better way of doing things and I've got to go do it myself. And it's not an overly strategic decision. Most entrepreneurs don't do an MBA and then go study and prepare and plan and then execute this perfectly designed business model. That's absolutely bullshit. Um, most entrepreneurs just wake up and say, why is it done that way? I can, I can do it a different way and roll up their sleeves and get it done. So what you often find um, in the sector is that, you know, the informal economy will provide formal employment for a lot of people at the base of the pyramid. And um, But some of the ventures that we have found and supported are people formally from the informal economy, but we've also uh, backed a number of ventures that are providing job opportunities for people in the informal economy. So a great example is um, groups that actually um, will provide a registry uh, called ID Works so that they actually provide a website where a lot of informal labourers can post who they are. So it's a kind of bit like an Uber for informal workers. So instead of just standing on the side of the street with a sign saying plumber, builder, carpenter, um, you have a portal now that exists where you can post your name, a couple of the jobs you've done. It's very simple. And then you can find employment um, online as opposed to standing on the side of the street and hoping at between 7 and 9 a.m. you can get picked up and find a day's work with no job security, no guarantee of employment, no employee rights. So um, there's a very interesting growth of the informal economy, but I think as economies do sophisticate and you find yourself landing in more um, formal forms of employment, um, you get opportunity to build more diverse ventures where you get access to seed funding and capacity to grow these early stage ventures but to answer your questions I I definitely wouldn't argue the difference between entrepreneurs um, irrespective of whether they're in the informal or formal economy. Yes that's really interesting. I've got two more questions I want to cover before we finish up today. The first one is one that I ask a lot of our guests and it's what are we getting right in international development at the moment and where are our major areas for improvement? So, I mean, what are we getting right? I mean, you probably need to look at the fact that, you know, we are trending in the right direction. Um, levels of people living in below the poverty line are decreasing, um, partly due to the international development sector, but you know, partly due, due to, you know, access to trade and, you know, some of the major emerging economies that are bringing millions of people out of poverty. So, but I think as a whole, you know, we're, we're talking about humanity. We're, we're getting that right. We, we, we are seeing reduction in levels of poverty from, you know, 1990 to 2000, 2000 to 2010. We're on the right trajectory. So, I think there should be a degree of um, hope that we we can take from that and and to know that policies are working, Um, but also ventures are are sophisticating. And I'm really excited about this too, not just because of government, usually it's quite healthy when they're out of the way, but we're getting philanthropists, foundations and trusts sophisticating. So they're asking the right questions. They're getting, they're caring more about impact. They're diving into results. Um, so impact measurement that really didn't exist as such an important tool 15, 20 years ago now is like the first first question in any donor-led conversation. 
and it starts with you know large foundations like the Gates Foundations, but it trickles all the way down to small foundations that may only be distributing fifty to one hundred thousand dollars per year. Are sophisticating and asking good questions. It's not just based on relations and trust. Oh, you're a good person. I'll give you the money. It's well, show me the results. What does that mean? Okay, I don't understand how that has improved that person's life. Can you go back and um, send me this information? So I think that's um, really healthy. We're also um, getting more and more interested about some form of impact investment, and it's a dubious term at the moment, but it's, it's deploying capital into the sector is also a powerful way of solving problems. And we've got a lot of ventures that uh, hybrid social enterprises and for-profits for impacts that will be able to scale off uh, some form of capital being injected into the sector. So that's a long answer to that part of the question. So the second part of the question was, um, what do we need to improve? Okay, well, I mean, I'll, I'll bring it back to the work we do. I think it's how do larger organisations, middle-tier organisations, and even small organisations start to realise that um, locally-based solutions are the right way to go. We're not the only organisation flying this flag. There's a number of great organisations. I call it a bit of a renaissance of the international development sector, but great organisations who are flying the same flag. And um, hoping, as a point of encouragement, more can lean back um, via listening to this podcast or the numerous other people talking about it too and, and just fundamentally say that the best ways of solving problems are just listening to the local people and asking for their solutions. Great answer. I completely agree. The last thing I wanted to ask you, I, you're, you're not working with YGAP anymore, but I imagine that you will continue to be involved with the organisation in various ways and, and following their journey. What does success look like for YGAP 10 years from now? And what does success look like for you personally 10 years from now? I will be applauding and watching YGAP, um, not from a significant distance. I'll be a lot closer because I'm remaining on the board. I'm going to be chairing our fundraising committee on the board. So this is my first week of uh, unemployment, but um, I finished up the end of June. So um, I have stepped back from my executive role. Ten years from now is an exciting picture to draw for YGAP. Ten years ago, we didn't exist, and, and ten years later, you know, we 24 staff in five countries with just short of 400 ventures that we've backed to improve the lives of over 580,000 people. And we're really strict with how we measure our impact. That's not a loose number of, oh, there's 580,000 people who have been given access to safe water for one day. That's bullshit. That's not a life improved. We're, we're really detailed with how we measure a life improved. Um, so providing access to but tertiary and primary and, ter primary and secondary education is one life improved. Um, but ten, 10 years from now would be YGAP to um, settle itself um, now that we've got this focus um, and to truly become a, a significant global player. So we're, we're, we play in the same realm as your Skull Foundations, your Echo and Greens, your Ackerman Funds, Village Capital, who all have the recognition in the impact entrepreneurship space for the work they do. Um, now that YGAP's found its feet and um, grown its credibility in Australia through through really sheer hard work and grit and a good development model built by the Tates, we need to position ourselves more globally. Um, and often it's difficult for Australian organisations to do so, but to, to ensure that um, we are recognised in the sector for the important work we do, but 
importantly, 10 years from now, we, we should be talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of early stage ventures that we've found, support, backed and grown. And our measure of success will be how many more early stage ventures have we got behind? Um, and then the ecosystem around us, are there more players doing this too? Because it's not competition. There's so many early stage ventures that need support. Even if they fail, that's a really healthy thing too. And we encourage organizations to be prepared to fail, but getting behind a gamut of early stage impact ventures and providing them support. So our measure of success will be how many ventures that we can support and, of course, lives improved, but also in the ecosystem, how many are following us. For me, I barely know where I'll be by December this year, so 10 years from now is a long time away. But I made a commitment at um, 23 to dip my toe in the international development sector and fell in love with it. Um, 28, left the corporate sector after five years of volunteering and, and sort of went full-time with YGAP. So it's got my heart. Uh, I do need a, a bit of a break, and I'm, I'm aiming to go to a master's in the UK. I was, I was telling you before the recording started, Rachel, but um, I'm going to lean out a bit of an education sabbatical. I'm a true believer in um, the, the power of education for not only people we work with through our entrepreneurship programs, but for myself. Um, so I'm going to go study for hopefully 12 months and then um, my next step will most likely be around ethical leadership and social advocacy. So I'm already exploring options of building a new venture that are focused on ethical leadership and social advocacy. So that's all I can tell you right now. Whether I'm doing that in 10 years' time, my record shows that I do make a 10-year commitment, so maybe that will be for 10 years. But um, I will be staying in this sector. My, my love and passion remains very strong. So I'll be out of Australia for a while, but uh, back to do something new in the not-too-distant future. That's really exciting. And, and based on all your success so far, I'm confident that the next thing will be just as incredible. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Your insights have been so fascinating, and I, I know that anyone would benefit from, from hearing from you. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 